I love you, Holy Spirit. I love the way you move. I love the way that you come. I love the way that you pour out and baptize us in the presence of Jesus. And I pray and I ask you, precious Holy Spirit, to baptize everyone listening in the presence of Jesus. You are the teacher that Jesus said would come after he left to help us, and that you would teach us all things, that you would reveal the person and the meaning and the heart of Jesus. We invite you to do that today, Holy Spirit, as we continue in this series on the subject of repentance. Amen. We've been talking about the word metaneo. It's a Greek word. It stands for repentance, or it's translated generally repentance. But what we have found is that it doesn't have anything to do with feeling guilty or sorrowful or shedding tears or running up to the altar, um, begging God to save us and forgive us. It doesn't have anything to do with a wrathful or punishing God and and our emotional appeal for his forgiveness. In fact, we found out last week that this word metaneo means repentance about God. Repentance about the way we believe about God. Repentance about the way we think about God. It occurs to me as I go into today's study especially with the, the, the unpacking of these atonement theories, which I promised you last week I was going to do, that there's a need to provide you resources like those that I study and have been gleaning and learning from. And so I'm going to do that. We have a couple of slides for you here. Could we put those up for everybody? So uh, I am indebted to Brad Jerzak and his book entitled A More Christ-Like God. As I share today's message and next week's message, it is being taken from chapters 12 and 13. Uh, I think the world of this book, and evidently so do a lot of other people. Let's uh, go to the next slide here. These are just some of the endorsements that Brad has received, and you'll recognize some of those names. How about Paul Young, author of The Shack? How about Eugene Peterson, author of the Message Translation of the Bible? So on and so forth. There's a number of those that I personally uh, know or have met that you may not have. But I can tell you this is a who's, who's list, a who's who's list of uh, endorsements that you won't find in many books, actually. So this book by Brad Jerzak, A More Christ-like God, is, should be on every library. It should be in your library in, in, or on the shelves of every Christian, and we need to read it. We need to read it and study it. And so, again, I'm indebted to Brad uh, for the message that I'm going to be bringing you today and next week. Uh, let's go to the next screen, and I want to show you something here. This is uh, a quote by Baxter Kruger, also himself in his own right, a theologian and one of the tremendous authors of many uh, great books on this subject of atonement. Here's what he said regarding 
Brad Jerzak's book, A More Christ-Like God. Good souls, many will one day be horrified. Excuse me, this is not, this is not Baxter uh, making this statement. He's quoting somebody now. Good souls, many will one day be horrified at the things that they now believe of God. This is a prophecy of George MacDonald that has found its fulfillment in Brad Jerzak's journey from the volatile mortal monster to the face of Jesus or Jesus' father. That's a statement from Baxter Kruger in his recommendation of this book. Look at this down here at the bottom. I have never conceded the fact that I regarded him as my master. Indeed, I fancy that I have never written a book in which I did not quote from him. That's C.S. Lewis speaking of George MacDonald. So you see the intertwining here of these individuals and how related this great message of incarnation and inclusion and atonement, at one with God is. For George MacDonald to prophesy that one day Many of the higher-ups, many of the theologians who were so sure of what they believed are going to be horrified at the things they have to repent from that they once believed in the books they wrote. And that certainly is something that Brad Jerzak has experienced himself from the early days and years of his own Christianity and his walk and the things that he used to teach to writing this book, A More Christ-Like God. I thought that that was very profound. Let's go. Next. We're going to have our text here. I believe that's next on the screen. Oh, thank you. I, I nearly forgot. So, I, I'm going to be doing a very high-level, 40,000-foot view of the atonement theories. There are basically seven of those. But if you would like a document, I have it, and I will make it available to you. If you write to me or text to me and let me know, it's about five, six pages, a summary of the seven atonement theories, all right? So text me at 720-878-8899, that's 720-878-8899, or write me at jcorson at genesiscc.net. Reason I say those things when you might be asking, well, it's obvious on the screen, why do you have to repeat it, spell it out? Well, because uh, statistically, we can see that many people listen to these recordings after the fact, after the service is over, weeks and weeks later, months later, only by audio. They're not watching. And so if I don't spell these things out sometimes, they don't get the benefit of being able to see them. They may not even be in a place where they can download the audio or watch, excuse me, the video or watch it by video. And so once again, if you want this document, email me or text me and I will send it to you. Now I believe we have our text for this morning, which is taken from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I've entitled this morning's message, How Does Jesus Save Us? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
what we want to do is examine this word saved. How does Jesus save us? And to do that, we're going to uh, take a cursory look at these atonement theories, drilling down on just about three of the seven, uh, not really unpacking them. I'm going to do that uh, for you next week with two of them in particular, Christus Victor and, um, and the uh, justification theory or substitution theory. Uh, but what we're going to do today is mention all seven of them by way of metaphor. There are numerous metaphors in the writings of Jesus and of Paul regarding atonement or how are we saved. And that's what we want to take a look at today. How did Jesus save us? In the New Testament context, when we talk about Jesus saving us, Here's what we're talking about in terms of the New Testament. We believe Jesus died for us. He died in a way and for us in a way that we could not do for ourselves. That Jesus did for us what we could not do ourselves. He came in person to rescue us. He has led us out of our alienation and estrangement from God. And He's reconciled us to God into the Father's house. Christ's incarnation, His passion, which means His death, burial, and resurrection, and His resurrection together, all three of those. So His incarnation, His being born as a human, His passion, going to the cross, and then His resurrection, rising from the dead. All of those together comprise what we call the finished work of Christ. Many people think that the finished work of Christ is just Him on the cross. So that's not true. It's that entire thing. His, his coming, His incarnation, His passion, and His resurrection. Atonement means at one month. By grace, Jesus Christ restores us to oneness with God, to the unity meant for us back in the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed oneness with God total oneness and unity with God. Jesus redeems us, atones for us, and through His atonement brings us back into oneness with God. But how does that atonement work? How did the life, death, and resurrection of Christ save us and reconcile us to God? Was the wrath of God somehow satisfied through punishing Christ? Or was the cross God's grand rejection of wrath and the solution to sin? Now, theologians have asked and purposed and battled over this how for many centuries. And we call those proposals that they have come up with atonement theories. Here's the seven from the document that I've offered you. Moral influence theory, ransom theory, Christus Victor, satisfaction theory, penal substitution, the government theory, and the scapegoat theory. Now, uh, there's two things that are at issue right off that you need to know about when we're talking about these theories, all seven of them. First of all, the, the atonement of Christ, His salvation of us, is not a legal event. 
It's not a theoretical transaction between us and God. This is a real living thing that God did, that God paid for, that God sent His Son to accomplish for us. And so to put it merely in legal terms does a great disservice to the atonement of Christ and to why He came. And many of these atonement theories do just that. They, they encouch the beautiful, incredible dream of God's heart and salvation of humanity in very legal language, which should never happen. Secondly, and it's a related, it's a related issue, and that is that, uh, that some, I'm speaking of theologians, Bible students, passionate Christ followers, are so emotionally fastened to their own beloved theory that they license it, even equating it to the gospel itself. They often charge that those who disagree with their interpretation are abandoning the gospel. I have heard that myself. They often charge that those who disagree with their interpretation of their pet theory are not only abandoning the gospel, but that you're heretical. Others are critical of particular atonement theories, perceiving something toxic to the gospel that's embedded within them. And so they float words of fear, telling you to be sure to stay away from reading or following or listening to anybody who doesn't agree with their particular pet theory of atonement. I'm going to jump back, uh, media team, to a previous slide here that I didn't touch on yet, and that is Ephesians chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. I believe you have at least 2 Peter there. Here's what you need to understand about our salvation. Our salvation began instantly when the eternal Word of God, Jesus, came in His divinity and became human. In fact, Paul says, and you, you don't have this, so if you're looking for it, Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that before the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain, Right? So that's before all the theories, all the theologians, all the criticism, all the ugliness that exists regarding these various atonement theories ever came about. You were in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. Before you took a breath, before you were born on this planet, God knew you. God purposed that you would become one and be restored to oneness with Him through the great atonement of Christ. In fact, God became a man that man might become a God. This isn't mere New Age drivel. That's inspired by the psalmist in Psalm 82 in verse 6. Jesus quoted that verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 34. All of the early theologians, including Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Augustine, echoed that idea and that principle unanimously as a major Christian doctrine. Peter picks up on it, and you do have this slide, please. 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. We became partakers of the divine nature. You and I have become partakers of the divine nature. So God became human that we might become like God. Now that doesn't mean you're part of the Trinity or that you on this earth are divine, but you have God's nature living on the inside of you, and that's something that God did in Christ. He made you one with himself in Christ, and that was accomplished in his heart and his mind long before the foundation of the world and long before all of these various atonement theories were argued, were pinned and purposed and argued. Atonement theories are often treated as synonymous with the biblical metaphors used to describe Christ's work of redemption. Jesus and Paul both used various metaphors to explain the mystery of Christ's atonement. Both of them did. And atonement theories, by contrast, are human interpretations and working models exploring different aspects of this mystery. So our theories about the metaphors need to be held very lightly. But the metaphors themselves that Jesus gave us and that Paul gave us, we need to take very seriously. And it's those metaphors I'm going to go into. I'm going to go into five metaphors regarding the atonement, which picks up on at least two or three of these atonement theories and helps explain them. The gospel, listen to me really carefully here. The gospel is the story of how Jesus came to reveal the love and mercy of God and how in his life, death, and resurrection, Christ decisively accomplished God's saving work of us. That is the gospel. Very simple. Bottom line. So whatever atonement theory you want to attach to it, better help explain that or it's not biblical. So, once again, let's be sure everybody understands. When we say, how are you saved? Or, what is salvation? Or, how did God save us? What are we talking about? When we use the word saved, which again, the larger word, atonement, that Christ atoned for our sins. What are we really talking about? What is the gospel story? What's the storyline? What's the power of the gospel that Paul said, that's what I major on. I just preach the gospel. I don't get into all of these theories. I don't get into all of the modern-day, current things about religion and Christ or how he died or what people are theorizing about the best way back to God. I preach Christ and him crucified. That is the power of God. What did he preach? Here is the simple storyline, especially as it is elaborated on in the book of Acts, by the various evangelists. Number one, God sent Jesus into the world to announce the good news of peace. To turn us from wickedness and to save us from ourselves, not from him. Jesus was then crucified. Sometimes they say, and you killed him. They tell the religious leaders of that day, and you killed him. And then God raised him from the dead. He is Lord and He is Savior and He is making all things new. Not just human beings. New Testament declaration of Jesus' atonement and reconciliation back to God is all-inclusive of all creation. And then they say this, Now, turn your life to this Jesus. Entrust Him with your life and He will make you new too. 
Brad Jerzak calls this that I'm about to share with you now over the next several moments, the constellation of metaphors. I'm picking five of them. Number one, again, now these are metaphors which help describe how God saved us in Christ. Christ used these and Paul used these. I'm just going to major on the ones that Christ used in the Gospels for this message. Next week, when we talk about Christus Victor, when we talk about justice and punishment, I'm going to go into the letters of Paul and we're going to learn from there the metaphors Paul used for the atonement. These are Christ's own metaphors. Number one, lost and found. This is first mentioned in the story of Zacchaeus. Here's a verse, Luke chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. Today, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost notice the pre-cross desire of the father to love and to reach not after the cross before the cross Jesus was seeking lost people see that's the heart of God to have fellowship with to seek to be in the presence of lost people. Jesus demonstrated that by going over to Zacchaeus' house, a tax collector, a reprobate man, somebody who'd, who had disowned the covenants of God and gone outside of the covenant of Israel and of God to collect taxes on his own people and get rich, for which he repents and tells Jesus during this uh, lunch that they're having, I'm going to change. I'm going to give the money back. If I've overcharged anybody, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to, and he, start, he starts going through a, a litany of, uh, of do-it-yourself religious moral behavior changes. And the beautiful thing here about this lost and found metaphor for salvation is it's not only a restoration to God, but it's a restoration to the community and to covenant with God. Zacchaeus had disowned covenant. Zacchaeus had been isolated and ostracized from the community. Jesus says, I'm putting you back in covenant with God and I'm putting you back into the community so that you'll be in fellowship. We have three other parables of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, the parable of the sheep, the parable of the coin, and the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. Now, as a pretext, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, starts out by telling us this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners. Here's Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Jesus became increasingly popular among, watch, notorious sinners, tax collectors, and other outcasts. The Pharisees and religious scholars noticed this. This man, they said, welcomes immoral people and enjoys their company over a meal. That was one of the worst things you could do in that day morally was to be associated with a sinner and a tax collector and have a meal with them. Invite them over to your house. I mean that, that ranked amongst the worst sins especially socially and religiously of that day to have a meal with somebody who was outside the covenant of God or who was a notorious sinner. And the religious leaders were calling Jesus on the carpet and saying, hey, we notice you have regular fellowship with these kind of folks. 
And then Jesus gave them three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. All in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. Now it's Jesus in these three parables that welcomes in all three of them sinners to the table of fellowship. And then he says heaven's attitude towards them is one of joy and acceptance and love. Now, you might say, well, I'm a lost coin, a lost sheep. I don't relate to that. I don't manage sheep. I'm not a sheep herder. That was long ago. Can you give me something relevant? Prodigal son? Yeah, yeah well, that, that tends to hit home. Well, I had such an experience with this lost and found to where it really hits home. One week while we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a minister's conference, our daughter was with us. Uh, sweetheart, do you remember about how old you are? Were at, at that time? <laughs> not, not now, but <laughs> you don't remember? I mean as a guest. Okay, so we're thinking she was a little younger. I think you said eight at one time, nine, eight, nine, ten years old, and she was with us at this minister's conference. And a bunch of us, after the session was over, uh, we wanted to go out to lunch. So we were excited about being with one another. We climbed in a couple of cars and we took off. We were miles down the road when all of a sudden we looked around and we noticed Lisa wasn't in the car. We had left Lisa at the hotel, preteen, just nine, ten years old, by herself. <laughs> Lost. We whipped that car around. I forget who was even driving. I was. I'll leave her. She'll be fine. We whipped that car around. We made our way back. And I mean, you know, your mind is imagining the worst when something goes lost. And the feeling also is terrible. Not only in what you have lost and the devastation of that should that not be found, should it turn out bad, but the devastation that you were so careless, the devastation that that happened under your watch, the devastation as a parent that something I treasure is now out of my control, is left. And we feared, certainly, your thoughts go to the very worst. Well, we got back to the hotel and she was there I'll make a long story short. We found her. Hallelujah. <laughs> She's here today leading worship and praise. Wonderful woman of God. What am I saying? Whether it's a lost coin, lost sheep, prodigal son, or leaving your daughter in a hotel at a minister's conference and you take off for lunch. You can see how you would Oh my gosh, you wouldn't be in a, a, you wouldn't be in a state of I'm going to punish her. Why wasn't she there? Why didn't she stick closer to us? Why did? Oh my gosh, when we found her, we hugged her and we wrapped our arms around her and we loved her and we reassured her and then we apologized profusely for what had happened. You see, the Father gives us in these metaphors that Jesus tells us about. He gives us the first idea of what atonement is like in these metaphors. 
the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, that God isn't a wrathful God, that God isn't a punishing God, that when he finds something that's lost, he's, his heart is torn, his heart is broken, and he embraces and he pulls up close to himself and brings them back into fellowship. You see, religion teaches the purpose of metanoia is to redeem us back to obedience. But it's not. It's to redeem us back into fellowship. So let's show that slide, please, Jeff. This next slide. Heaven's definition of repent is the joy of being found and the intimacy of being welcomed back to the table. That's heaven's idea of metanoia, to repent. There's no punishment. There's no why did you. There's no anger. There's no wrath. It's welcoming back. It's redeeming. Religion teaches us that the way back to fellowship is obedience. It's not. It's through the finished work of Jesus provided in grace. Religion teaches us that the finished work of Jesus was on the cross, but it wasn't. It was in the resurrection. And note that all of this is entered into by simply believing on Jesus, just accepting His words and saying, I trust you with my life. Nothing I have to do, nothing I have to change, no punishing God, no retributive God who's in anger, ready to clobber you for where you've gone, how you've misbehaved, or how you've missed it. And I'll just say, and I've pointed this out, but I'm going to summarize now. Notice that in all of these metaphors that Jesus gave us in Luke's Gospel, Number one, a complete absence of a wrathful God. Number two, a complete absence of an angry God that needs to be satisfied. Number three, complete absence of the legal demand for punishment because He is a just God. Number two, second metaphor Jesus uses to describe salvation. The great physician. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 17. And I wonder, uh, sweetheart, could we get back the, the air conditioning? Could you flip that back on for me? I hope you all are enjoying this heat. 100, 102. It's been great, hasn't it? My lawn is still green, though. It's amazing. I think the Lord's been keeping it green. Oh, that, and I haven't mowed it for two and a half weeks, <laughs> so it's longer. Uh, the great physician, Mark chapter 2. Here's, here's another metaphor Jesus uses. Watch. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not lostness, in this metaphor, but sickness. The lost, the unsaved condition of man, is said to be by Jesus a sickness. Watch this. I'm going to have, I'm going to have it on the screen for you. Sin is not seen in this metaphor as guilt to be punished or a debt to be forgiven. The dominant metaphor, of course, of our atonement theories. But it as rather some sort of disease rooted in the suffering soul that needs to be healed. And in this case, through fellowship with Jesus. Woo! The way we heal, the way the great physician heals us 
of the sickness of sin is by drawing close and getting us into his presence, not by pushing us away or punishing us. This is Jesus' metaphor of atonement. By the way, punishment is never a cure for the disease of sin. The presence of Jesus is what's medicinal. And we need to rethink our penal code in our, in our country, in our prison system, because many have been incarcerated unjustly without a view to this very metaphor of how to heal the sick. Number three, the atoning sacrifice. Here's another metaphor that Jesus uses for atonement or to be saved. It's called atoning sacrifice. We find it in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36, who says, he, quotes, takes away the sin of the world. He was quoting John the Baptist. Then again, because he takes away the sins of the world, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Now, this is in reference to a Levitical system of atoning with sacrifice. Let me tell you what that encompassed real quickly. The priest would take two goats. All right, hang in there with me now. The priest would take two goats. This is the sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood. In atoning for the people's sins, he'd take two goats. On the first one, he would... Uh, it was given to the Lord, and he would kill the goat and sprinkle that on the mercy seat in the temple on the Ark of Covenant. The goat was not punished for sin and could never be a payment for sin. Rather, this goat is offered to God in exchange for the mercies freely received. This goat is not about wrath, satisfaction, but a renewal of covenant oneness through a shared meal. That's the first goat. That's how he was dealt with. The goat was killed, but it wasn't in wrath or in punishment, and it was offered to God as thanksgiving. Then the second goat, watch this. The priest later confesses the sin of the nation and all the people. He lays his hands on the second goat, which then is symbol symbolically bearing those sins, and they take the goat and they release the goat outside of the city. And the goat disappears into the wilderness, presumably to die. In this picture, the second goat, or quote, scapegoat, is innocent. But he bears the sin of the people and he is never seen again. But none of that is done in judgment or punishment or anger by the priest. And the goat is not killed right there and his blood shed and all of those sacrificial pictures. He's let go. Jesus is called our scapegoat. Christ is the sacrifice of our atonement. Christ is given as a sacrifice for atonement. But when Paul takes those, that metaphor of the scapegoat and he teaches it, He's the apostle of grace. He reverses everything about it. Watch. He says God is the one presenting the sacrificial offering. Who is receiving the sacrifice? We are. Is this a sacrifice of appeasement to placate God's wrath? No. 
Christ is the sacrificial gift of grace for all. All who receive him by faith, including those sinners and enemies whose judgment God had forestalled, are forgiven and reconciled to God. Not through punishment, not through an angry God, but by grace. And notice, God did not need, I have this for you here, please. God did not need to be reconciled to us. He was never our enemy. We needed to be reconciled to God. And that's this beautiful metaphor, Christ, our atonement, our scapegoat. Now, you might be saying, well, gee, this whole sacrificial system of the Levitical law is what I was taught and raised with in Christianity. Christ is our sacrifice. He had to die. He had to bear the punishment. He was killed. He was put on a cross for me. That's what I deserved. Actually, no, that was never God's heart. Yes, that was the Levitical system, and there were laws regarding that. But God did not give them that system as a picture of Christ. Excuse me, I'm sorry. That is not a metaphor God, uh, excuse me, Jesus or Paul uses in their preaching. In fact, listen to this. Instead of the do-it-yourself religion of blood sacrifice, Psalm 40 and verse 6 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Psalm 51 and verse 16, You do not delight in sacrifice. God took no delight in blood sacrifice. He wasn't requiring that. The message of grace, the God of grace, the God of love, not the God of punishment, doesn't require sacrifice. He doesn't want that. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 says this. So this is New Testament. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Wow. And yet we have built a whole atonement theory, which we'll touch more on next week when we deal with the wrath of God and punishment in penal substitution, the theory, penal substitution. We've built an entire theory trying to help define how we get saved by using this Old Testament do-it-yourself penal system of blood sacrifice. And nowhere in the New Testament is that upheld. Jesus didn't teach it. Paul didn't teach it. Peter didn't, didn't teach it. So here's the big issue with evangelicalism today. Salvation is wrought, they think, certainly not by divine pardon, but on the grounds of repentance. You know, dear ones, if I might just segue for a moment and rabbit trail, I want to make a personal observation and comment here because I just recently received something in the email encouraging my participation in this event. It's an event where they're calling on thousands and hundreds of thousands of Christians to gather. To gather in Washington and to repent. And to tell God we're sorry and to repent of our sin and to come before Him in great grief and sorrow and confessing our sins. Hoping and believing and trusting that God's hand will move and turn our nation. Now, I have no problem with individual Christians taking a personal posture towards God of humility and sorrow when we blow it and saying, oh man, God, 
that was stupid. I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. That breaks your heart. I repent. <laughs> that, that kind of broken attitude is okay in your personal relationship to God. But I'm telling you, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, the scripture that always gets quoted for times like this, does not apply to the New Testament Christian. And this is why I have an issue with most modern calls for repentance as a community or a nation. Revival isn't based on repentance. It's based on believing that Jesus reconciled us to God and that by His grace He pours out blessing on any welcoming community or individual. And He does it not because I repent and start obeying. He does it because He loves me. He does it because of Jesus Christ. Not my righteousness, not now, not in the future. Not my laying before Him and crying and repenting and saying, God, what a worm I am. But because of what Jesus did when He came in His incarnation and became a human. And then He went to that cross as a substitute. Yes, that is one of the theories, the substitution theory. But it has its place. It has its place in this that Jesus is our substitute when he hung on that cross. He was there in our place. But he was not being punished by an angry God who was taking out retribution on him as a sacrificial lamb. That's the difference. That's where you cross that boundary. And that's where so many of these calls for repentance as a nation go. They don't stay in grace, and I think there's a way for us to do that. This is what the early church first experienced after Jesus ascended to on high. He said, you go and wait and tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. So 120 believers, they didn't go repenting and crying and remorseful and, oh, what a worm I am. They went to that upper room and they began to worship and celebrate the risen Christ. They began to celebrate the one that, who had atoned for all of their brokenness, all of their sin, all of the heartbreak, all of the things that they had caused. They knew after Christ's resurrection, they finally had the, res the, uh, the revelation of who Christ was and His atonement. And they went into that upper room and they began to worship and they began to praise and they began to glorify the risen Jesus Christ. And because of God's grace and because of a welcoming community and individual believers lifting their hands and saying, We believe! We believe in your atonement, Jesus. We accept by faith what you did in your cross, in your death, your burial, and your resurrection. We believe it. Bam! The power of the Holy Spirit was poured out. And it changed the earth, and it changed the church, and it changed humanity for all time. And it birthed the New Testament church. That's what we need in America today. A believing community that will humble themselves, recognizing the beautiful atonement of Christ through the metaphors Jesus gave us, through the metaphors Paul gave us, which we'll discuss next week. And then worship in humility, thanking Him for His grace. Done preach myself happy. Woo! Glory to God. Number four, real quick, I've got two more. And I know you're saying, you can't get through two more. Watch me. All right? with God's help. Redemption, number four. Redemption, God redeemed us. Here's the classical meanings that Western evangelicalism applies to redemption. Number one, something's gone wrong, now it's been turned for good. Number two, cashing in of a coupon. 
Number three, buying it back, this item, this person, so that they no longer have to face the fire of destruction. We call that hell. Evangelicalism calls that hell. But here's the biblical meaning of redemption. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord God redeemed you. You see, it's largely about rescuing people out of bondage or oppression into which they had fallen. God views our sin as a sickness, as a disease, something we've fallen into. He doesn't require repentance and obedience. He requires that we come to the great physician and accept his healing and his redemption. God comes and redeems us. In the Levitical law, in the Levitical life back in the Old Testament, here's how that was practiced. It's called the year of Jubilee. Does anybody know what I'm talking about, the year of Jubilee? You know that the year of Jubilee was that every 50 years, all of your indebtedness would be wiped out by the, by the community. Everybody that held a loan, all the banks, all of the farmers, all of the people to whom you owed a debt, they forgave it all every 50 years, and you were scot-free. That was actually a law in Israel called the year of Jubilee. Now, there was a second way in which that could come about, and it could come about any time. You didn't have to wait 50 years. It was called the kinsman redeemer. One of your kinsmen could come who was able and pay off your debt. Just cancel it completely. And then put you back in right standing with all your property, all of your belongings, with the community. It was called the kinsman redeemer. He didn't have to wait 50 years. Woo, what a type and shadow of our redemption. I like to quote Brad Jerzak here for just a moment. And I quote, and it will be up here on a slide for you. We find his redemption is much more expansive than we expected. It is universal in scope. The redemption of Christ is surely from bondage, but not only from the bondage of men, we are redeemed from the bondage of sin and its consequences, including the decay of death. We are also redeemed back into God's family, a family composed not merely of the 12 tribes of Israel, but in fact, all of humankind. Woo! Hallelujah! And so, through Christ, He redeems us back to and for Himself. We are His own possession. Our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, comes. And He pays off. He doesn't pay off all the debt. He just cancels it. He says, My love, my grace, is greater than everything you owe, everything against you, Everything in the law that's chalked up against Brad and Vicki Paget, it's canceled right now. I cancel it. And as your kinsman redeemer, I bring you back to myself as my own possession. Matt and Lisa Whipple, whatever you've done over these years, whatever's been incurred, I cancel that debt and I bring you back to God to fellowship with Him. Because you are mine now, I, I have atoned for you. And so the price of this redemption is Jesus' own precious blood. It cost him his life, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. You are not your own. You are bought with a price, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Now, there's actually a difficulty, though, with that metaphor. It's the idea of, and here's our last metaphor now for this morning that's used in the New Testament by Jesus. 
It's called the ransom metaphor. Here it is in the scripture, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul said it this way, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people in 1 Timothy. Now, here's the question. Who received the ransom? If Jesus bought us back and paid a ransom, who received the ransom? Well, not God, because God's not a slave owner. Look at our text. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Well, so was it the law then that God paid back? And by interpretation, in other words, God's justice? Did, did God exact that punishment? Did, was God being paid back by what Jesus did? Psalm chapter 51, verse 16 and 17. Rather than blood sacrifice or burnt offerings, the response God looks for is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. No more sacrifices. No more do-it-yourself religion. Jesus does it on our behalf. We humble ourselves and say, I believe. The two greatest words in our vocabulary, the two most powerful, life-changing words in all of the English language or in all languages, I believe. I accept. The ransoms paid. Psalm 49. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. No one. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. No, it wasn't God. It wasn't the law. It was death itself. It was death that was exacting that punishment. It was death, not God, that was exacting a payment. And you know what? Who made that payment? Jesus. Jesus paid the price to death. Death was the gate by which Jesus entered into Hades and he plundered its captives. Now, I want you to watch the screen. Look up here with me, please, everybody. Those of you by live stream or watching the video, pay attention to these special verses because it really encapsulates then all five of these metaphors so beautifully as we think about the fact that Christ ransomed us. He didn't pay God back. He didn't pay Satan back. He wasn't under a legal system trying to pay the law back because Jesus' love supersedes the law. Jesus' love, he can forgive and show mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy. He's not bound by law. Jesus paid death back. Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Here's Young's literal translation of that. Only God doth ransom my soul from the hand of Sheol, for he doth receive me. The early church called it the harrowing of Hades, the victory raid. Woo! 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God by being put to death in the flesh, 
but by being made alive in the Spirit, in that he went and he preached to the spirits in prison. Prison. Jesus actually went into hell. He went into Hades. He paid the price, and then a great switch took place. All of judgment, all of the penalty, all that death had hanging over you and me through fear, Jesus canceled when he paid the ransom in hell. He died for us. God performed this great switch. And now we're judged by a different standard. It's called the standard of grace. I'm going to end with a quote from Brad's book, A More Christ-Like God. We'll have it for you on the screen. And I quote, So in Christ, the ransom metaphor points to the rescue of those taken by death and held in the grave. The ransom price is Jesus' life. Death personified is paid. But payment might be too strong of a word because death can't hold him. And so in John's revelation, Jesus announces, Do not be afraid. I am the Father, or excuse me, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What do you suppose he's going to do with them? He's got them. He paid the ransom. I'm no longer subject to death. Yes, my physical body, should the Lord tarry, is going to go back into the ground. But I will never taste of death. I will live forever because I've been ransomed. I've been welcomed back into fellowship with my Heavenly Father. And next week... We're going to look at two of the metaphors Paul uses as we talk about victory and justification. Victory and justification. Brad Jerzak calls it the unwrathing of God. Did you hear me? The unwrathing, like the wrath of God, the unwrathing of God. Victory and justification. We'll deal with two of Paul's metaphors for salvation and atonement and two of the predominant uh, theories, in particular penal substitution, which is pervasive in most of, most of the evangelical world. Could we stand?